You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about our money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, everybody. It's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. So glad to have you along with us today. You know, I think people sometimes think because podcasts just appear in their phones these days, at least they do if you're a subscriber, and we hope that you're a subscriber, that they're as easy to produce, as easy to get out there as they are to incorporate into your life. And I don't mention this enough, but there's a relatively large team that works on this podcast every single week. You all know Kelly Holtgren, of course, but Beth O'Connell is our producer. Charles DiMontebello is our engineer-in-chief. He's got a whole team backing him up. And sometimes, no matter what we do, it all goes wrong anyway. And I bring that up because um, my guest today is Catherine Finney, who is the founder and managing director of Digital Undivided, which is an organization that invests in the success of black and Latina women tech founders. It provides them with networks and coaching and access to capital to help them build their companies, scale their companies. She is a wonderful and also very busy woman. And so we invited her on the program right after we launched several months back. And for some reason, the audio just went to hell. So we didn't want to put it up there because it didn't put her in the best light. It didn't put us in the best light. We don't want to make you feel like you're listening to your father's old scratchy records from the 1950s. And so we called Catherine and said, we blew it. Can you come back? And she said, yes. And she's joining us by Skype today, nicely refreshed from a little sabbatical that I hope that she'll tell us about. Catherine, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to be on. So a sabbatical, you described this trip that you just took to me, and it sounds a little bit like you went on your own Eat, Pray, Love adventure. You know, it's so interesting. Um, When I was in the airport on my way to um, one of the many flights. It took about four flights to get to where I was. I actually saw that book in the one of the airport stores, and it just was really funny. But um, yeah, I had what is called an Eisenhower Fellowship. It's a fellowship that's about 60 years old. It started off as a gift to President Dwight Eisenhower from his friends. They wanted to do something nice for him. I joked that my friends give me scarves. You know, his friends gave him a fellowship. (laughs) Nice friends. Nice friends. Uh, It's been around for over 60 years and 10 um, sort of early to mid-career leaders are chosen each year for it. Um, We choose two countries to go to that 
fit in our field. And so for me, I'm really interested in emerging economies and how the innovation economy is working in sort of non-traditional societies and how women are being involved and incorporated. Um, so I went to Indonesia and Thailand, which were two amazing countries, all implementing various parts of the innovation economy in very interesting ways that are unique to the cultures in those countries. What did you learn there that you'll bring back and incorporate with the women that you work with in this country? Oh, I learned so much. Um, One of the, the major lessons was that in order for technology to an innovation to reflect the communities of a country, you have to be quite intentional about getting people involved um, and diverse people involved. So you can't just create it and expect people to show up. You have to intentionally do this. And so I was in Indonesia and met with um, a group of, of young guys who started one of the premier innovation economy or innovation academies uh, at a university in Jakarta, which is in central Java, which is the island that Jakarta is on. And it's the largest island in Indonesia. And they had approximately 50% women in their innovation incubator, which I thought was fascinating, right? Because in the States, it seems to be a problem getting even 20% women. But mm-hmm. somehow this country that although it's secular, it's predominantly Muslim, was able to get 50% women. And I asked them, well, how did you guys do that? And they sort of just looked at me like I was crazy. And they're like, well, we just wanted to make sure women were there. So we just made sure women were there. And (laughs) I was like, you know, that is true. Like they set out and were very intentional with making sure that the Academy reflected the diversity of the country. Another part that I thought was very interesting was, um, especially coming from a a very Christian background myself, was how um, conservative people who are more conservative Muslim women who wear the hijabs um, and women who were more liberal uh, just interacted seamlessly with each other. It wasn't even a big deal. And there was a number of women who were more concern on more on the conservative spectrum who were also in the academy as well and so it kind of flipped what we know of um muslim countries and muslim communities on its head for me um and one of my friends said she was a liberal in a muslim covering that's what she said (laughs) Uh, which i thought was so interesting but it was very much a choice of these women to express their religion in that way. And it was really fascinating, really, really refreshing to have that perspective that I did not have before going. You know, it's interesting as you talk about these lessons with Digital Undivided, with your organization, I mean, you have set out to do much the same thing. When you look at, at the amount of venture capital that goes to women of color, the results are really dismal. I mean, when you look at the, you noted that that we've got only a small share of women in the incubator programs in this country. But if you segregate it further and you're you're looking at women of color as your data points, it's just downright bleak. So why did you decide to start your business in this way? And, and what sort of change have you been able to affect? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, it definitely comes from my background. Uh, my father was a rural worker who fell in love with C++, the programming language, uh-huh. and completely changed my family's life. Uh, I took a and- class in C++ in college, and I got a C++. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, you know, it, and this was the early 80s. So to have that vision and to see where technology was moving um, was really a, a gift that my father had. And it had a huge impact on not just my life, but an entire community's life. And so growing up with that and seeing the impact of technology to change um, a person's life and a community's life, it really had an impact on me. Um, and initially, I didn't go into technology directly because that would have been too logical, as I tell people. But um, I became an epidemiologist and was living abroad, working abroad, and had to come back to the States and was a little bit lost at what I was going to do because my life was dedicated to being abroad. Around that time, I I also fell in love and got married. And so I was at home, just newly wed, um, a little bit bored, and decided to start this small blog called The Budget Fashionista. That's how I first found you. Yeah, it was totally a hobby. You know, I was struggling to figure out how I was going to pay my student loans off and still be fabulous. And it just took off into its whole, a whole nother space that I had never dreamed of. Um, It led to lots of TV. I got to talk to amazing people like you. And it just, again, technology changed my life and saw the power of that and saw how I could create the life that I wanted to because I owned the company and I could call the shots. And if I wanted to go away to Indonesia for six weeks, I could do that um, because I didn't have a a boss. I didn't have anyone to tell me what to do. And it was a certain freedom about that. And it was a certain freedom that's rarely granted to young black women to be able to dictate your life and choose the life that you want. And so definitely the budget fashionista gave me that. And I later sold it, which gave me even more freedom. And to go through that process of building a company and then selling it was a very trying experience. And I talked to our companies here about, you know, when I got our first sort of letter of sale and it was 32 pages, 10 point font, single space. (laughs) It was like, what is this? This is like crazy. But just even how do you sell a company? What's the process? We didn't have investors. I did not take investment because I knew that I didn't want to be stuck with the budget fashion. So I knew it was time for me to move on from that. Um, And I knew that if I took investors and I had bosses and then I had to stay with it and I had to bring it to its logical conclusion. And so I sold it and then went on to blog her, which is a massive organization that represents something like 40 million women, social media influencers. Uh, as editor at large and blogger then sold. So within a four year time span, two of the organizations I worked with sold one that I owned and one that I worked for. And I got to see that process up close. I got to see what it's like to sell a smaller organization. And I got to see what it was like to sell a much larger organization that was ventured back. And around the same time, I was also doing a lot of public speaking at conferences. And I noticed that I was often the only woman and definitely the only black person in the room. And some of these conferences were like thousand person conferences. They were not, you know, small conferences. And it's like, 
you couldn't find anybody else, like no one <laughs> else, no other women, no other people of color. Um, and it really had an impact. And I started to think, where are we? Because I knew a lot of Black and Latina and other women who were starting companies, mm-hmm. leading startups. And why weren't we in the room? And so I had an idea to gather all Black women in tech in a room. And and we had our first focus conference in October 2012. And I went to blog her with it, actually. And I said, you know, I want to do this like event. What do you guys think? Don't know who's going to come. Don't know what it's going to do. And they said, yeah, we think you should do it. And not only do we think you should do it, we're going to give you a little funding. And we're also going to help you figure out what the program should be and how you and, and a program manual, which was like better than any money. And so it was a real amazing first event. And from there, we started to do more activities. We started to look at what was going on. And in 2014, we noticed that a lot of events were happening, but there was nothing happening after the event. Like the impact was the event. It wasn't any sustainable impact afterwards. So we started to put together our ideas of what we could do that would have a more sustainable impact in really getting more women of color as founders of tech companies. And the result was essentially an incubator for women of tech, uh, women of color in technology. And and I want to dive into that and see if I can get you to give some advice to all women who are thinking they've got a great business idea or they've started a small business, but they want to grow it. How, how do you do that? How do you decide whether to take the money? How do you decide how to go from that second employee to the 10th employee? But before we do that, I just want to remind everybody that her money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives because we all deserve to live the lives that we work so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. That's the place you'll find more conversations like this one with Catherine Finney. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married, getting divorced, starting a new career, building a business. Again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. We are happy to be here with Catherine Finney of Digital Undivided. So let's take a step back. I mean, I know because I I feel like I know our listeners that every single one of them has at least one good business idea and possibly seven. How do you start and then how do you grow? That's a really good question. I think for most of us as women, it's it's getting started. We have so many things pulling at us on a daily basis. Just taking that first step to getting started can be the hardest. What I often tell people is to just get started, like literally build. If you have an idea, build what we call a minimal viable product or MVP. And it's just a very bare bones implementation of the idea that's in your head. Uh, you don't have to spend a lot of time on it. You shouldn't spend a lot of time on it. And the reason why you shouldn't spend a lot of time on your MVP is that you don't actually know yet whether or not what you have 
it's just an idea or if it's a business. And you won't know if it's a business until you get out there and you get feedback from real live customers. So, so it, you wouldn't want to spend a lot of time or a lot of money, right? I mean, this is your lean startup, essentially. Exactly. Lean startup. You want to build the most basic example of that idea that you can build. A prototype is another way of thinking of it. The most basic prototype that you can do to get it out there and get real feedback from people who will actually buy it. One of the things that we have seen that happens is that we get so married to the idea that we're afraid to release it. We get so married to the idea that we want it to be absolutely perfect before it's out in the world. And we spend a lot of time and a lot of money. And either we find out that what an idea that we love is not loved by a lot of people, or at least not enough people to make it a business, or someone else comes up with the idea because we spent so much time trying to make it perfect. And so you want to get it out there. You want to get real feedback. You want to see what people think of it. Now, the interesting thing, an MVP can be as simple as a drawing on a napkin. It can be as simple as a very basic WordPress site. Mm -hmm. It can be as simple as a drawing that you do on your computer that's a wireframe of what it would look like, either the product or a website. So these are all the things that you can do, very simple things that you could probably do in an hour or two. And you really shouldn't spend much more than that. It's just more getting the idea out of your head onto paper so that you can share it with others. And how do you get from there to step two? So you let's say you've got something. You you do your lean startup. You, you get some feedback. You realize there's a market for this. When do you start looking at something like an incubator, like an accelerator? And tell people what an accelerator is, because I, I don't think everybody knows. Unfortunately, incubator and accelerators tend to be used interchangeably. An incubator is a place that allows you to develop your idea. It's usually a much longer program. It can be anywhere from three months to a year. Uh, usually come into a space or have classes and other basic things around developing a business and developing your idea. An accelerator is after you have your idea after you have a more developed, minimal viable product, then it's the time to apply for an accelerator. And what an accelerator does, it actually accelerates your idea for you, your company. Usually accelerators don't have structured classes. Most of the time, accelerators are linking you with mentors, linking you with potential investors. And so they're looking for companies that are much further along. You're not usually at the MVP stage um, when you're in an accelerator program. Most accelerator programs last no longer than three months. Mm -hmm. Because, again, you, are, you already have your idea and your, the basics of your company already developed. This is now just helping you propel you forward. Most accelerators offer investment. Um, the, the larger ones can offer up to $150,000. Incubators don't usually offer investment, and sometimes you have to pay for an incubator. So what do you look for as you decide who to accept into your program? Well, we look for a number of things, and I'm not the final decision maker. I tell people they may think so, but there is a whole team that makes a decision. But what I look for is I look for people who have had challenges in their lives and have overcome them and have won. It is something about someone who did not have everything given to them. 
and but yet was still able to succeed, was still able to win, was still able to build a product against all odds. That is somebody that I want to be with, somebody who I want to invest in. As one of our partners, investor partners tells me, it's somebody that, that he wants to be in the trenches with. You, you know they're going to do the work. You know they're going to make it happen. And that's who I look for. It's not an education thing. It's not a location thing. It's not even a industry segment sort of thing for me. It's really about the founder. You know, that is so interesting. I, I was uh, over the weekend, I was in a car for, for a while. I was reading the latest issue of Inc. magazine, or maybe it was one before the latest. Barbara Corcoran was on the cover. We recently had her on the podcast. And for anybody who missed that, you should go back and check it out because it was a good it was a good discussion. But she said very much the same thing when she is deciding who to invest in on Shark Tank. She wants people who had an unhappy childhood and who have a score to settle. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I would say <laughs> that, but, but I hear what she's saying. And interestingly enough, I think Barbara is the most successful shark. Too. Yeah, I think she is. I'm not yeah. surprised. I am not surprised. Well, Catherine, I could talk to you all day, but um, we'll have to invite you back again to do that. Tell me um, and tell our listeners where they can find you and where can they find more about your program? We can find us at digitalundivided.com. You can also find me on Twitter. I, I tweet a lot, probably too much, at Catherine Finney. Um, but if you come to Digital Divider or you Google us, a lot will come up. Um, we also have a number of events at our big innovation center in downtown Atlanta. A lot of cool things going on, and we would love to see you all there. That, that sounds good. We will absolutely check it out. And thank you again for joining us on the program. Thank you. So Kelly has joined me in the studio, and if you think I'm sitting very far away from you today, you're right. Kelly is is sick with what she claims is not bronchitis. I don't think it's bronchitis. It, it sounds to it me sounds a lot bad. like bronchitis, and Hayden on our team has bronchitis. We hope she feels better. Is bronchitis contagious? I don't think so. Oh, I think so. You think bronchitis is contagious? I thought, like, maybe the... Like the catalyst for getting bronchitis, like strep, for instance, you're or a coughing cold. up a lung. My I friend. am okay. Maybe I'll go to the doctor. I think that would be a good okay. idea. I think so. And and Purell. When There's you leave plenty the of Purell. Plenty of Purell. All right. What you got? Our first question is from Leela. She sent us an email. She says, "I have some money saved, thirty thousand dollars, and I'm looking to invest. I am interested in purchasing ETFs through an online trading platform, but I am unsure about how to determine my risk tolerance. I'm hoping to save enough for a down payment in five years. I live in Toronto, where the housing market is very pricey, and I know that investing is a long game. How do I figure out my risk tolerance? And do you think it's okay to use part of your registered retirement?" savings plan for a down payment. So, Leela, a couple of things. You gave me everything that I need to answer your question with the exception of your age. And that's because when we talk about retirement and risk tolerance in the same conversation, essentially, that risk tolerance is based on how long you have until retirement. Um, the money for your down payment, because you're expecting to use it within five years, should not be 
in risky investment vehicles. You you can put it in investments in more of an intermediate or short term bond stash because the value of those are not going to waver as much. And so you could certainly do that. You could look for money market or savings accounts that have better than average interest rates, which you can find online at places like bankrate.com. Or you could even look at high interest rate checking accounts because if depending on how much money you're socking away, the interest rates on those, as long as you use your ATM card a good 10 times per month and you're willing to make at least one deposit every month automatically, those sometimes have even better interest rates, rates that you you can't touch um, in a regular checking or savings account. So I'd say check all of those out for the purpose of your down payment, but keep that separate from your retirement stash. And as far as the risk tolerance for your retirement goes, I assume you're fairly young. I assume, and by fairly young, I'm thinking under 45 or 50, right? That's these days, that is fairly young. I think so. And that money should largely be invested in stocks. Take 110, subtract your age. That's about a benchmark for the amount of your portfolio you want to have in stocks. Put the remainder in a mixture of bonds and other less aggressive instruments and consider taking about 20% of your stock portfolio and making sure it's invested internationally. All of which, by the way, you can do with ETFs. Thank you, Leela, for asking. I love that we have a listener in Canada. Yeah. Actually, we knew she was in Canada, even if she hadn't told us she was in Canada because she called it a registered retirement savings plan. Well, she actually called it an RRSP, which I then Googled to find out that is what that means. That is what that is. Excellent. Our next question is from Patrice Richardson on Twitter. She tweeted you asking, if you're a 1099 contractor employee, what are your suggestions for retirement savings? I'm early 40s. So you are at the place that a lot of people are where you've got to do it yourself, essentially. The good news is there are a whole bunch of ways that you can do it yourself with various accounts, and I'll go through them in a second. But what I want you to make sure that you do is that you come as close as possible to replicating a 401k in that you make your contributions automatic and you put the money to work as soon as you make those contributions in a set of investments that you've already chosen. What we know about 401ks is that the big reason that they work so well is that they just get you to put the money in automatically out of your paycheck. So lacking that, you have to do that for yourself. Where could you put the money? I'd say it depends on how much you're looking to put away. But I would look at two things off the bat. Number one, IRAs and Roth IRAs. You are fairly young again. And so a Roth IRA, at least having some money in a Roth IRA is a really good idea, especially if you think that tax rates are going to go up in the future, which many, many people do. You can put up to $5,500 a year into a Roth IRA, which is terrific. And once you hit 50, you can put an extra thousand a year, which is great. If you can do more than that, Look at a SEP IRA. A SEP IRA allows you to put away significantly more money than you can put into a Roth IRA and take the tax deduction. And it allows you to essentially put aside 
up to 25% of your income, which could be a big, big chunk of money up to limits that are in the $50,000 range. So you can do that once you get the money in the account. Remember, these are holding pens. Put the money to work. Keep fees in mind and pick a portfolio of investments that are right for you at your age and risk tolerance and just keep it going. Excellent. Thank you, Jean. Thank you, Kelly. Feel better. And thanks to everybody for your questions. Please remember that you can always reach out to us. We want to hear whatever is on your mind. You can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, and at jeanchatsky.com. And now it's time for our weekly Thrive segment. It is officially tax season this year. It kicked off on January 23rd. And like last year, where you got a couple of extra days, it will run through April 18th. You get those extra days because the 15th falls on a weekend and Monday, April 17th is a holiday. But try not to look at those three extra days as extra time to procrastinate. In fact, what I want you to do is to file as soon as you can. And that's because of tax refund fraud, which is the fastest growing form of identity theft. It can happen when a thief files for your tax refund before you do it yourself. And all it takes is the wrong person getting hold of your name, date of birth, and social security number, which is available widely on the black market for less money than you ever would think. I actually looked this up yesterday. You can buy social security numbers for 30 bucks. 30 bucks. Ridiculous. So your best defense is to file as early as possible. Here's what you got to do. Get organized. That means gather all your income statements, your W-2s, your 1099s for people like Patrice, who, who sent us the letter. Gather them as soon as you receive them. Make sure that all the numbers on those forms are correct. If they don't match the numbers that the IRS receives, your return is going to get kicked back to you. That will cause you to have to regroup which will take additional time, which we're trying to avoid. Also, pull out last year's tax return and use it as a guide. You want to see which credits and deductions you might qualify for again and any new ones you might be eligible for. Next, do not, I repeat, do not give out tax information over the phone. You may receive scam calls from IRS impersonators trying to steal your information and money because they run rampant this time of year. Here's the deal. The IRS will not pick up the phone to call you. If you owe money, you will receive a bill in the mail. While we're discussing this, it's important to know that you shouldn't give out information over email either. Watch out for phishing emails from IRS impersonators, too. The IRS will not contact you by email, by text, or by social media. The IRS is old school. If it needs information, it's going to contact you by snail mail. When you're e-filing, use a secure network. Over 128 million taxpayers e-filed last year. If you do it, make sure you're using a secure internet connection, which means no publicly available Wi-Fi. Be safe and filing electronically also comes with a few perks. You get almost immediate confirmation that your return has been received, whether it's in good shape or not. And in some cases, you get your refund back faster. Okay, quick recap. Do not procrastinate filing your taxes this season. 
avoid tax refund fraud by getting it done as soon as possible. If you haven't done it already, get all your papers together this week. And remember, the IRS will never contact you by email, text, or social media. The IRS is old school. If it needs information, it will only contact you by snail mail. And when you're e-filing, use a secure network. I want to say a big thank you to all of you for joining me on Her Money today. Thank you to Catherine Finney for a great conversation. If you like what you hear, I hope that you'll subscribe to our show at iTunes. That makes it really easy for you. It just lands in your phone every single week. Leave us a review. We want to know what you think. We want to know who you'd like to hear coming up on the show. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join us next week with my friend John Berger, author of Datanomics, a take on the economics of dating, will be with us just in time for Valentine's Day. We'll talk soon. Thank you.